I'm sure none of you kept count. I didn't either. But we've covered a ton of scripture over the last four or five weeks in here, looking at the need to have these faith conversations, the the imperative, the things that can go wrong, the ways that they are good and glorify God. And scripture has a ton to say about that. And then what we're going to get into next after this little mini section is how to have them, how to think through the process um, in general before they start based on who you may be talking to and what you know about them. But then also in real time, as you're interacting with people, um, how to make those decisions on the fly about what do I do next? Is it, is, it, is it worthwhile to go down this path? Do I go down another one? Do I push pause on the whole thing? Is this a pearls before swine situation? Is this a bruise reed situation? And we'll use a lot of scripture in that part of the conversation as well because scripture gives both examples and direct guidance on how to have faith conversations. What we have in the middle, though, I, I think it's useful Very useful for some of you who uh, think this way, but we need to be able to put approaches into buckets. So if we think about whether, whether you use the word approach or methodology, framework, whatever you want to use, when you're talking about faith conversations, evangelism, apologetics, helping people mature in the faith, that idea of I'm going to have a plan for how to approach this conversation, that plan is a methodology. That plan is a framework, an approach. And we need to be humble enough to recognize that um, we're not doing that in a vacuum. We're doing that in the context of thousands of years of history of people having these kinds of conversations based on scripture. And so we, they, since they've been doing this thoughtfully, people have come before us who have plowed these rows. We need to look at what they did, what they decided. We need to look at the, the methodologies, the buckets, the different approaches that other people have come up with. And that kind of history of those approaches, what's right about them, what were the unintended consequences, what wasn't in the end right about them. Because as we get to developing our own biblical framework for how to approach these conversations, we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. And as we're developing that, we need to know it saves us a lot of time and energy and harm if we know what's on the table and what's off the table. Oh, I can't really take that approach because historically people have tried that. Here's what that implies. Here's the unforeseen consequences of that. And so as we think about apologetic methods, we need to do a survey of apologetic methodology throughout Christian history. And I've tried to group these into as big buckets as I can so there are as few of them as I can so that this doesn't turn into a 13-week class on the history of evangelism and apologetics uh, in the world, ancient and modern. But this does matter. It's, It's easy to think, I'm just sharing my faith. Why do I need some kind of method or framework? All I'm doing is talking about the Bible, what I believe, how hard is that? 
But there are always different ways to approach that, different methods, and each is going to have some pros and some cons. Some will be objectively good or bad. Oh, we cannot take that approach. It undermines our argument before we've even begun. And then some will just be better or worse. Well, you need to know what you're signing up for. This is kind of leading you down this path. Here's what you got to watch out for. And so we need to consider them. Not so that we become experts. I'm going to try to keep this very high level. But because of, again, we need to know what's on the table and what's off. We need to at least consider the, a few moves down the chessboard, the unintended consequences of what we're going to say and the approach that we're going to take. Um, and this next couple of weeks will not involve a lot of scripture. Because we're looking at a history of Christian behavior, basically, of the, what's called the philosophy of uh, apologetics or evangelism. And so um, that's sort of my uh, starting apology for the fact that in a Sunday school class where I really try to have us in the Bible as much as possible and have you all read the Bible, the next couple of weeks are not going to have a whole lot of Bible reading. Uh, we will get back there, but I want to take this brief intermission because I think it's helpful. Um, here's the crux of the issue. What every position will have to reckon with. So I'm going to give the spoiler for the end at the beginning. What every position has to reckon with is what you're trying to prove in this conversation, what you're defending, what you're ultimately advancing forward is the supernatural, inerrant, ultimate superiority of the Bible. What all of this will come down to is that scripture is our ultimate authority, that it is without error, that it is supernaturally given from God himself, that it is unlike anything else. And in fact, it is the only source of inerrant truth, of of truth that you can't mess up, right? Because you can look at natural revelation, what God has made, and draw faulty conclusions. Scripture, rightly understood, is perfect. And Scripture is actually how we understand the natural revelation. So we can get truth from both, but we can get truth from both because of Scripture. Um, Can you prove supernatural, inerrant, ultimate superiority of the Bible if human reason is the foundation of your argument. Can you say, I'm going to set aside the supernatural perfection of Scripture to prove that Scripture is the ultimate authority, or in some way, if you're going to argue that Scripture is the ultimate authority, is that the thing that you start with that actually doesn't get proved in a human way of speaking? Um, We'll talk about ultimate authorities a lot, but how do you start with a foundation that's not going to undermine your ultimate conclusion? The example I've used before is, uh, why do I believe, why do any of us believe that the Bible is true? And the answer is because the Bible says it's true. If the answer were, I believe the Bible's true because I really trust Justin, and Justin told me it's true, then the Bible is my second highest authority. Justin is my highest authority. So if I pile up a whole bunch of evidence and proof that says the Bible is the ultimate authority, then the Bible is my 
second ultimate, my penultimate authority, because I believed all that proof more. I didn't believe all the I didn't believe the Bible until all the proof told me to believe the Bible. So that's what all of these views are going to have to grapple with. How do you do both? How do you use the proofs and the evidences and the logic and the reason that God has given us? without undermining the superiority of the Bible. Some of these views won't even try. And those are the ones we'll take off the table. And then in the end, you'll be left with two. You'll be left with two approaches that I'll tell you as we go along, I don't think are all that different. But people way smarter than me for a very long period of time think that these two views are very, very different. And you're wrong if you have one or the other. And so I'm going to teach both. I'm going to teach both the way um, that people who believe the traditional reform view, which is called presuppositionalism, I'm going to teach it as a presuppositionalist. I'm not. I'm actually a classical apologist because I don't see a big difference between the two. But I'll be honest and talk about that along the way. That distinction is going to be what matters most. Are we being conscientious about recognizing the superiority of Scripture all the way through the process? That, to me, is the real crux of the matter, the critical issue. Um, And the point of listing out all of these different systems is not because they're so incredibly different that you could always tell them apart. Like if you were eavesdropping on somebody else's faith conversation, you would say, oh, they're employing the fittiest method, right? They're parts on a spectrum. They're different dots on a spectrum. My apologetics professor describes them them as points on a continuum. But it is helpful to distinguish between them so that we can pay attention to some of the key differences. All right, first, let's talk about fittiism. All right, what does fide mean? Sola fide is faith alone. Uh, So, fideism is that all of this, everything we believe, rests on faith. Now, let's define what they mean by faith in this view, which is entirely subjective, entirely personal, no rational basis whatsoever. This was uh, Immanuel Kant, Critique of Pure Reason. So it's a fancy term. It's a fancy philosophical viewpoint, right? No, I bet you've heard Christians make arguments from this approach all the time, which is, it's just my faith. I believe just because I believe. It's not, it's not about proof. It's not about a rational basis. It's not about, well, that's my faith, and that's separate from uh, science or logic or reason or anything that makes sense. You'll recognize the names of some very famous philosophers who operated at this point in the continuum. Blaise Pascal is one of my favorite in general, but he argues uh, from the Phidias perspective. Soren Kierkegaard is that way. If you've heard of Karl Barth... All right, here's the two questions that we're going to ask about all these positions. What does the approach have going for it? What does it get right? And then what are the unintended consequences and the problems with it? So what would this approach have going for it? What would we say is admirable or helpful or good about this approach? Can you explain the approach again? So it's just believing my faith is just my faith. It mm-hmm. just is. 
Yeah, that there is no philosophical argument. There is no evidentiary proofs. There is none of that. So I have no reason to tell you what I believe other than I just believe it. Yeah, and what the best you can hope for someone else is that they would believe too. Right? That that I want you to believe too. Because it's a subjective personal thing. It's not an objective reality that I can communicate to you. It's a subjective possession. So then this would only work for somebody who really holds you in high esteem. Like, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who's like, oh, whatever they say must be correct. Then mm-hmm. I'm going to, it doesn't hold up with. Y'all are doing great on the negatives of this view. What about the part that like, hope is something unseen? Yeah. So. Go ahead. That takes um, into consideration that not everyone is going to believe it. So, election. Yeah, faith really does matter, right? The Bible has a lot to say about faith that is beyond the intellectual collection of facts. Now, we'll argue from Scripture that. It's not the absence of the intellectual collection of facts. It's actually the opposite. It's your ability to believe the intellectual facts through election, through only a gift of God. That also makes faith very personal, right? Your faith matters. We talk in this, we're sharing the faith, which is the emphasis of this class, but your faith matters. That's why you're the one sharing it. Your faith is not subjective and different, but it is yours. It is personal, and it's important to honor that. Your experience of the Christian faith is tailor-made by God for you, a person of his special creation that he made in his image. God has a deeply personal relationship with everyone that he's given faith, and that's great. <laughs> that part of it is very personal. And it's more than just a collection of facts. But that's kind of all this view has going for it on the positive, right? Uh, because y- you are correct that when you get to the negatives of this view, it just doesn't hold up. Um, it doesn't hold up to Scripture, which is you know sort of a major problem. So we'll put Scripture disagrees. <laughs> And it's all those texts we've been reading over the last month that tell us we do have reasons to believe. It's all those examples of Paul and of Peter going into these cities and reasoning with people from the scriptures that this makes sense. It fits together. It makes rational sense. And it tells us to rely upon that, to to fall back on that. Fideism also creates a false dichotomy between rationality and faith. And that's really important because we live with the consequences of that dichotomy today. This whole faith and reason, this whole science and faith dichotomy that the world thinks is so clear-cut, that's a result of this false rationality and faith dichotomy. If Because faith, the Christian faith, is believing that what the Christian God says is true, and the Christian God is the one who made all that is, exactly what part of life would be unrelated to the Christian God's truth? 
What, what aspect of your being, what aspect of this world could you separate out and say, God's truth is irrelevant here? None of it. He made it all. Um, and so that doesn't work. It's not, a, it's not a, the way I try to describe it is faith is not like a slice of the pie of life. The way some people will say, all right, here's the pie of life. I got my faith slice, my work and my all these other things. Faith is the crust. Every slice of life that you try to take, faith is, God's truth is the, uh, the source of that, the foundation of that. And then the other problem with this is it, it makes God, and I'm going to put apart uh, from his world. <laughs> Now, there's certainly the sense in which God is distinct and separate and none of his creation is like him in his being, the essence of his being. But God is also constantly and fully engaged in his creation. God is at work in the world that he's made. He has purposes for the world that he's made. And this view takes, again, you got to go back to Kant's separation of the heavenly realm from the earthly realm, where it just makes them these radically different spheres. And that's not a helpful way of looking at this. Those two spheres um, in Christ were bridged together. It's, it, that's why there were earthly consequences to supernatural events. It's why there were earthquakes and the sky dark, darkens and the t- temple curtain is torn in two. It's why when things happen in the heavenly realm related to Christ, there are creational manifestations um, because God is constantly and fully engaged in bridging the gap between those two worlds. And this view really keeps them apart. Questions about fideism. I don't quite understand where the, the false dichotomy comes from. Is it like that scripture is not completely inerrant? No, it wouldn't start there. It would start with the difference between a material world and an immaterial world. And in the material world, that's where you can do things like science. That's where you can use human reason and logic. An immaterial world is so categorically different. It's the realm of the, of the supernatural, the realm of the spiritual. Human reason has no application or value there. And faith comes from that world, not from this world. Does that help? You don't, yeah, I mean, you don't meet a lot of serious philosophers today who take this view. You meet a ton of random Christians who operate under this view. Okay, second. Yeah. You wouldn't say their faith isn't regal. Like, I don't know, would you say they're immature? Like, there could be genuine believers that practice Absolutely. Faith. There are many genuine believers who practice this. They have not well considered the implications of their faith for the rest of life. They're still thinking that their faith is a slice of the pie rather than the crust. I could see where it would be easy. It's an easy way to make peace and be friends with the world and its ideas. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah. Yeah, especially within the academy. So I, when I said you don't find a lot of serious philosophers who take this view, I was thinking strictly of philosophy and religion professors, but I bet you find a lot of Christians in higher academics 
who take this view because it's how they justified their godless view of science in light of the fact that they would have told you that they are Christians uh, and genuinely believe that they're Christians and believe that they need Jesus' atoning death for their sin and yet think that the creation is somehow entirely off limits to God. And that gets back to that last negative I said where it makes God too separate from his creation. Um, that, that is not the world God's made. It's not the way he reveals himself in the Bible as being that separate. All right, I'm going to talk about the classical method. Now, this is the name used to describe an approach that is intentionally two steps. So the way you kind of identify the classical method in practice is these two steps happen in this order. The first step of the classical method is you prove theism. Um, Prove using natural theology that God exists. So natural theology is the evidence of God in nature. That includes evidences, uh, science, um, history, all the things we get with our senses. And it includes reason and rationality, the, the sense that our, our brain, our logic. So you use natural theology to establish theism. You prove that God exists. Um, you've heard the names of these theistic arguments before. If you've ever, if you have managed to get through life avoiding a class in philosophy, I applaud you, and you didn't have to dig into. But you've heard of an ontological argument, an ontological argument for the existence of God. It's an argu- It's a fancy way of saying um, the greatest. There has to be a greatest possible being in the world, just as a logical construct some being in the world has to be the greatest being and a being that exists is better than a being that doesn't exist therefore god exists that's a very simplified ontological argument there's lots of different types but that's what that means Um, you've heard of teleological arguments these have gotten very popular in christianity over the last 15 years this is an argument uh, what does does you know what telos means it's an argument from orderliness or design. So you can look at the universe, you see orderliness, something had to bring about the order. You see design, something had to design things as they are. So you can start from evidence of a design and reason back to a designer, and now you've proven theism. And just as a little footnote here, because those arguments have become so popular over the last decade or so, it is important to remember those types of arguments only prove theism. They don't prove Christianity. They prove that a God is, or that a God is more likely than not a God, is actually what they prove. Uh, And that's good. That's a good argument to make. Nothing wrong with that. But don't be fooled in thinking that that proves Christianity. There's also cosmological arguments for the existence of God. These are really um, fancy cause and effect arguments. Cosmological basically says um, for every effect, there has to be a cause, right? And for that cause, there has to be a cause. And for that cause, there has to be a cause. And you follow the causes all the way up the chain. But at the top of that chain, there has to be cause that has no cause, 
There has to be an uncaused cause. Otherwise, that chain just goes on forever. You see why so many philosophers go mad in the end? (laughs) You see, this is what they sit around thinking about all day. Uh, So that is a a cosmological argument, that there's ultimately an uncaused cause. That is God. Whatever that uncaused cause is, again, we're not proving Christianity. We're proving theism. So in the classical argument, you start with step one, get people to see that belief in the existence of a God, any God, is more rational than the alternative. Atheism is not rational. It defies human reason. That's why over the last 20 years, agnosticism has become so cool because they get to be atheists, but they don't have to fight these logical arguments because they just say, all I'm saying is we can't know. That's a very smarmy argument. All right. Um, so you're proving that God is makes more rational sense than that God is not. At the end of step one, you've proven that it is more rational to believe in God than to disbelieve in God. And then step two is that you show Christianity as, in a technical classical argument, what you're showing is that Christianity is the best view of theism, the most likely view of theism, the most rational to believe. Um, What I think you actually show in this second step is that Christianity is the only internally coherent Theology that all these other beliefs in God crumble under their own weight. If you start with all the truths of any false religions and you work your way through them, you will find ridiculous inconsistencies. You will find incompatible beliefs. You you will find um, statements in the Quran that are directly contradictory with other statements in the Quran taken at any level. Not the letter of, hey, let's acknowledge sometimes there's literature, there's genres, there's different ways we got to interpret and understand. I get it. No, no, no. Direct commands that are completely contradictory to one another. All of the cultic views, and I mean that in the technical sense of the term, all of the views that are tangential to Christianity or Judeo-Christianity but are false religions that are based upon it, they always end up with some form of Gnosticism. So they always end up with, no, 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 you need this special person to tell you how to interpret it. You need Joseph Smith, so then you can really understand. You need Muhammad, so then you can really understand. And it doesn't matter if those people contradict what they claim that they are building off of. They'll just say, well, that's corrupted. You have the corrupted version, and Joseph Smith had the true version. Muhammad had the true version. Um, So step one, prove theism. And then step two, among all the theistic possibilities, show that Christianity is the most reasonable, or I would say the only reasonable view. Lots of good folks operate at this point on the continuum. Thomas Aquinas was here. R.C. Sproul, more modern, was here. I'm telling you, I'm here but I will be very careful when we talk about presuppositionalism to make the point that I just don't think there's a whole lot of daylight between the two views in practice. There's some, there's some difference between the way they articulate the views on paper, and I think some of those corrections are helpful, but I think in practice they end up not being terribly different. So what does this approach have going for it? What's good about this view? 
It starts with God. Starts with God, right? Not us. Yeah. The the way God made the world. When you use natural, and this is that it's a great way to say it because that really highlights my discomfort with presuppositionalists who say this view is entirely wrong. And why they say it's wrong is because we're starting with natural theology rather than scripture. But we're starting with the evidence God put in the world of himself. We're using that evidence to reason back to God. And then later in the discussion, we will of course make it known that it's only through the lens of scripture, only God's special revelation, that we can be certain that we've done the work of natural revelation correctly. But I do agree it starts with God. <laughs> uh, what else? What else positive? He uses reality and what you see and rationalism. Yeah. It fits with the world. So in that part, it's better than, than fideism, which creates that ridiculous divide. This and presuppositionalism will both say, no, 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 no. This is God's world. Every inch belongs to him and every inch testifies to him. You just got to read the book rightly. The book being the world. Um, so really, just about everything about this view is good. This, this view has a lot going for it. The arguments are good. That's why they've endured this long. Uh, of the people who are uh, thoughtful and intentional about biblical evangelism, biblical faith conversations, nearly everybody will end up in either the classical method or the presuppositional method in the end. Those are going to be the two that are, are going to take the day. Let me give you, though, because I said we're going to answer the what are the unintended consequences or what are the problems with this view of all the views. So let me give you what those are with the classical view from the perspective of the presuppositionalists who are going to say, hey, lots good here, but not enough good here. Um, and it's the question we started with this morning. The, the beef they have is, can you defend God from a neutral starting point? Because pra- practically what happens with this view is you say we are going to set aside the Bible at the beginning of the conversation and we are going to just look at nature. We're going to look at the created order. We're going to use our rational faculties and we are going to decide from that that God is, is more likely and more reasonable than God is not. We, We put all the facts in front of us and we use those facts in order to come to a conclusion that God is, that God is supreme. And the The presuppositionalists are correct that that can be a dangerous endeavor if what you're doing is saying this is what gives God his credibility. We don't want to do that. We don't want to say God gets his credibility from the evidence in the world for him. We don't want to put God on trial. And so if that's ever what somebody's doing, we should have the little yellow flag go up that says, oh, be careful here. That stuff is not what gives God his credibility. But to me, it becomes an order of operations problem. When we get to presuppositionalism later, I agree with it on paper. I don't think in practice you can actually do the order that they say you do, where you start with Scripture, and then that gives you permission to do this, and then that it all ties up nicely in a bow. I think in reality, when you're talking to somebody who doesn't accept the authority of Scripture, you personally are not undermining Scripture when you read nature rightly according to Scripture, but you don't tell them that's what you're doing until later. You, you bring them along to say, that's how we got here. Um, but you know, 
faithful people can can disagree on that. We certainly want to be careful that we don't put natural theology on par with natural revelation. Our interpretation, apart from Scripture, of reality, is not as valid as what God actually revealed in nature. And we can't be sure about what God revealed. We can't do natural theology rightly without Scripture. What the presuppositionalists want to make sure of is that we don't put that, our natural theology, on par with God's revelation. Classical says, let's think neutrally. No appeal to God yet. And see where we come to. The presuppositional folks are afraid that that suggests that man can reason rightly apart from God. And what I would say is, yes. That's not actually what we're doing. Even though we say, for the other person's benefit, let's set aside the Bible. Let's be neutral. We know we're not actually being neutral. Because as I'll talk about in the next couple weeks, there's no such thing as neutrality. That's not a thing. But that is oftentimes a necessary entry fee to being able to engage in the conversation. Is, okay, you think there's neutrality. Well, by their definition of neutrality, okay, let's have a neutral conversation. I'm going to be exactly as neutral as they are, which is not neutral at all. But we're going to use that word because it makes them feel better. And the presuppositionalists say, yeah, but if you're claiming to be neutral, you've lost before you've started. That's, that's the point of tension where I just, I just think practically, I, I don't know how you get around that. It is important to acknowledge the presuppositionalists think it's very important that we remember the problem here is not that you're dealing with people who have no awareness of God. You have to acknowledge Romans 1. You're dealing with people who are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So you're not, at a, at a very technical level, you are not teaching people to learn something they didn't know. You're helping people admit what they already see and don't want to admit. And that, like, that's why I think these, it is helpful to acknowledge what each of the views is concerned about the other because that, that balance, that tension is, is really important. The classical approach argues that God existence is probable enough to believe. Remember when we're proving theism, prove is a little bit in scare quotes because we acknowledge you cannot prove God. You can only prove that God is more rational than God is not. God is, stands up to logical scrutiny a lot better than God is not. Well, presuppositionalists want to make sure that we remember that the existence of God for Christians is certain. It's not just probable. It's not just the most probable. It's not just the most believable. It is certain. God is because he says he is, and we can be sure. And again, I agree. And that is where people get to through these types of conversations. Getting them to acknowledge that as a starting point or thinking that if we don't acknowledge that as a starting point, we're undercutting our argument, is where I disagree. Uh, and then back to the presuppositionalists want to make sure we understand that you, Scripture has to be the ultimate authority. 
So however you're going to do that, and they don't see a way that you can do it in the classical approach, I think there is a way, but we both agree you have to make people see that Scripture, not their natural theology, not, Scripture is the ultimate authority. Um, and they think you'll have a very hard time doing that if you start out by setting Scripture aside and then appealing to natural theology and human rationality. Again, I'm sympathetic to those views. I, I, I don't agree. I think those concerns are important for how they influence how we have these conversations, but I don't think they, they take the day. Questions about the classical method, which we'll come back to more of when we talk about the approach of having these conversations, because this is my view. Presuppositionalists would say the biggest problem with classical is that we claim neutrality. So and I the believer claims neutrality or just the person for the sake of the conversation. Method. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, that's a great clarification. We're just talking about the faith conversation itself. Okay. So presuppositionalist argument is not that I, Paul, in my own life, claim neutrality. It's that if I, Paul, the classical apologist, were having a faith conversation, I would be willing to say to the hearer, hey, let's set aside the Bible and start from a neutral starting point. And the presuppositionalists know there's no such thing as neutrality. That's not real. I know that too. I know that's not actually what either one of us is doing. I just don't think I undo my whole argument by starting there. Because I think it, like I said, it's the price of admission sometimes. Right. And very reasonable, faithful people can disagree uh, on that. All right, very quickly, because I can cover this one pretty quickly. The evidential, evidential method. This one is what you think it is. Um. Josh McDowell, Christian author, Case for Christ, he's in this category. And this is basically the similar arguments and data that we might use in the classical method. We might appeal to evidence from history, evidence from science, but there's a lot more emphasis in this view on that evidence than on the philosophical proofs. Let's prove that God is reasonable and that he exists. This view is just let's pile up the evidence and make you feel like the evidence is overwhelming and that proves God. There, the miracles happened, therefore the supernatural is real. We have all this evidence that these miracles took place, therefore there is something supernatural in this world. And then look at all this historical evidence for the truth of Christianity. We've got all these documents, we've got all these historians, we've got all these eyewitnesses, we've got all this stuff. You pile up all that evidence and you say, Christianity's true. Here's all the proof. Um, so what does this approach have going for it? The data is good. A lot of the evidence that they're using is the same evidence that the classical and the presuppositionalists will use at some point in the argument. Um, this is it, Another good part is, if you're arguing with a, a specialist in the field, whatever the field is, if it's an archaeologist or a historian or a biologist, it's nice to be able to draw upon evidence from their discipline and say, no, 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 this faith... There's evidence from your discipline that fits into this faith and this worldview. Um, it is not, oh, you know, I could never believe Christianity. I'm a physicist. Let's talk about all the evidence from physics that supports the truth of Christianity. Um, so all that's good. The unintended consequence of this view, though, is 
even more than the classical approach, and in my opinion, the classical approach doesn't do it anyway, this really does put us as the ultimate authority. This really does, C.S. Lewis talk about putting God in the dock, where God is on trial, and we stack up all of this visible human evidence, and we say, is that enough to persuade me that Christianity is true? All the things that presuppositionalists are a Afraid of in the classical position, I think are very true here. Because the data is good, but this view never gets around to making it clear that you can't interpret that data correctly apart from revelation. You can't understand it rightly. Without the revelation, it proves nothing. Well, then with the revelation, it becomes a little bit circular to say that that's what proved everything, which is what the presuppositionalists are afraid of. God proves everything because God is God. He is that he is. He told us that, right? This is, this is what God says. And so you can't take all that evidence and say it proves God because it doesn't. And then you take all that evidence plus revelation. Well, then it's not really the evidence evidence that proved God anymore. It was the revelation that God says that he is, which brought all of that evidence to light and gave us the true interpretation for it. So it becomes pretty circular. Questions about that one? So nothing wrong with those books. Um, Nothing wrong with studying that type of sort of field specialist information. Just recognize where it fits in the process. It doesn't prove anything. It gives you talking points. It gives you field-specific examples of natural revelation. It seems like you can take stuff from it and then apply it to the other spectrum. Yes, classical and presuppositional will both use proofs that are very important to the evidential method. It's just a question of we're not using them as proofs. All right, we're done. Thank you.